Hi, hi. It's Ashley, and it is the Kick Ash Live podcast. Thanks for being here. I am grabbing the mic solo today to talk about finding one's voice. Stick around. At the end, I'm going to share with you an opportunity to work with me in a mastermind group where we talk about things like this, shared experiences in the professional world and life, because we need a support system for those things. But I'll explain more at the end. Today, I am going to tell you how I found my voice yelling at an empty chair in a New York City conference room. I've been thinking about that day a lot lately. See, as you know, I'm new to this podcasting thing. We are not even 10 episodes in and I'm still finding my voice here. It's one thing to talk to a judge or a jury, a courtroom, or to talk from stage where you can kind of connect with folks and and see them. It's another thing to be sitting in my kid's toy closet with all the doors closed, just talking into a microphone. And, you know, so I'm still finding my voice here. It's an interesting journey for me, and it's invoked a lot of reflection. It's taken me back many years uh, to the outset of my career as a litigation attorney at a very large law firm with offices that were all over the United States and actually across the globe. And back then, I was in love with the process, the process of law, the process of litigating cases. And if any one thing guided me the most, it's that I knew that I was curious. So here's the story of finding my voice. Maybe it's what we used to call at the law firm a war story, or maybe just maybe it is worth sharing because there's value in the lesson underlying the story. All right, here we go. When I was a fifth year associate, that means I had been practicing law at the firm for five years and I was on the partnership track. That meant I was doing everything I needed to do to um, be selected as an equity partner in the firm, but I still had a long way to go. And I was based in our Atlanta office where I had practiced for five years. And frankly, I was bored, like, B-O-R-E-D, bored. I had pretty much mastered the skills of mid-sized litigation or associate work on discovery. And what that means in litigation is identifying the witnesses, finding the documents, and exchanging information with the other side, the plaintiff's counsel, within the rules that apply to that world. And All of this happened in a lovely but cookie cutter office with prefab furniture, a desktop computer, because at that time laptops were only just catching on, a little bit of a window and a telephone with a lot of buttons, like so many buttons that it took a couple of hours of IT training to learn how to use the phone. I'm not joking, but I digress. In my second and third years out of law school, I'd gotten a taste of big litigation, just a little taste of this, and that was all I needed. So I was the local associate 
in an antitrust matter, the kind where the big guys at really big firms, and we were big, but these guys were big deals. They would fly in from New York and DC and LA for hearings that were taking place at the federal courthouse in Atlanta. I mean, these were the big guys. By the way, there were no women and there was one black man. Ray Persons was an incredible litigator, strategist, orator, all around great human, and I reported to him. And I still recall one time that this gentleman, he was so gracious, you know, his hair was kind of graying at the temples and he has the smoothest voice ever, really soothing. And he would wear the most fashionable clothes with monogrammed shirts that had cufflinks. And he just conducted himself with so much grace and generosity. And he invited me to a dinner with the senior attorneys who'd flown in for a hearing. And he, he didn't have to do this, right? This was unheard of and so kind, so generous of him because young associates, particularly not third year associates, like we just didn't get to attend these events. And this was a whole new world for me. I remember I grew up in a small town, but here we were in a private room at the Ritz Carlton in downtown Atlanta with 15 men and me and the room was dimly lit it was so elegant the linen tablecloths and napkins were starched and pressed the flatware was like super heavy the wine was expensive and there was a great fuss that was made over the wine selection which is always interesting to see how that goes down at these things conversation at dinner was maybe 10% related to our case. Like, how do you think the judge received this argument or the other side missed the whole point on this issue, et cetera, et cetera. And the remainder of that conversation was a mix of war stories from what we call the old war horse litigators. They have had years in courtroom battles and some of those can make for larger than life stories. And at some point, invariably, it shifts to who can tell the bigger story. The bigger the story, the louder and deeper the voices grew. So, you know, conversation ebbed and flowed from You know how this works, right? Individual chats with the folks that you're seated closely. And then sometimes conversations would cover the entire table because somebody with a bellowing voice intended for the entire table to hear it. And it was in the midst of one of these sort of loud, robust, everybody at the table is engaged conversations. And it got quiet because someone answered their phone. It's an emergency, he mouthed, and quickly exited the dining room. You gotta put this in perspective, right? This was before the days of everyone being tied to their phones at the dinner table. This was before we would sit, unfortunately, sit at a table with our phones and text in the midst of the dining experience. Like when this happened, when he answered his phone, it was in fact an emergency. And this fella returned 
uh, he was pale. He was shaken. It was November 7, 2000, election night. Some of you may recall it. In that very moment, at that dinner table, Florida 2000 had begun. In the race for the presidency, I'll just refresh your recollection. Oh, gosh, I'm such a lawyer. That's a a legal term. I'm going to refresh your recollection. In the race for the presidency, Al Gore won the popular vote by roughly a half million ballots. But the all-important electoral college count was trending toward George W. Bush. And it became apparent that whoever won Florida would be the overall winner. And the margin in Florida was extremely close. Actually, I researched this. It came down to just 537 votes out of 6 million votes cast in Florida. So November 8 dawns with some uncertainty as to who was going to be the next president. And we all learned the term hanging chads. Those were the punch card ballots where if a voter attempted to make their choice, but they only succeeded in detaching a portion of the perforated paper or merely denting it rather than removing the whole punch out, <laughs> then yeah, that the, the, those were hanging chads. Bush was declared the winner. He was named our 43rd president and the Democrats sued to force a recount in Florida, or certain jurisdictions in Florida. And in just over a month, the issue made its way to the Florida Supreme Court, which ruled that, sorry, I geek out on this stuff because I'm a lawyer, but it's interesting, right? They ruled that a recount needed to be had. But the U.S. Supreme Court voted seven to two to end the Florida court's ordered recount. Why am I telling you this? Okay, because that Tuesday evening, November 7, 2000, in a private room at the Ritz that I just happened to be invited to for no apparent, like really out of the ordinary, what a gift, seated in the far corner was a man named David Boyce, and he was in charge, and everyone knew it. If Mr. Boyce chose to speak, others hung on his words. He was lead counsel for our client, a major tobacco company, in a case that made antitrust legal history. And just hours later, Mr. Boys was named chief counsel for then incumbent Vice President Al Gore in the Florida election litigation. So why do I tell you all of this? Because that moment, that little brush with this level of litigation, with this level of influence, y'all, I got a taste for it and I wanted more. It was fascinating. And to be clear, it was not about status for me. It was sheer wide-eyed curiosity about this part of a world that I didn't even know existed. So a couple of years later, in my fifth year out of law school, I bought a plane ticket to New York City on my dime, and I haunted the halls of our law firm outside corner offices. And when I finally secured an audience with this force of nature named Greg Little, I literally pleaded with him 
for something new and different. I say, Greg, please, anything. I'm not learning anymore. I'm not challenged. I'm working hard and I'm tired, but I'm not growing. And for me, it was a desperate plea for help because I really was wilting inside. For him, for Greg, my behavior was most unusual in the world of law firms. And I'm pretty sure he was amused. Also, my mentor, John Lucas, he's the fella I tried my first case with. I wonder if I could get John on here. That would be fun. But John Lucas was also Greg's mentor too. I mean, why else would Greg have even let me into his office for a conversation other than that connection? So Greg kind of throws his hands up and says, all right, why not? Lesson from my younger self, ask for what you want. The worst thing he could say was no. And anyway, I would have had a grand adventure to a big city. But Greg, bless him, said yes. And he added me to a team of attorneys from all over the country who were representing a major tobacco company. And I can't tell you much, super confidential, but I can tell you this because it is something many large companies do when the stakes are very high. They assembled a team of seasoned trial lawyers from three different law firms with a handful of us younger folks, um, air quotes, emerging talent, if you will, okay? And this team, traveling band of gypsy attorneys, right? We traveled between Miami, New York City, and San Francisco for several years conducting mock jury exercises. So we were testing and refining themes to help the company understand how juries process the arguments and the evidence that would be presented in court eventually. All right, what does this mean, Ash? So, all right, in litigation, there's evidence, also known as facts. These are known documents or testimony about what happened. And I have to tell you, like rarely, if ever, is there a surprise by the time something gets to trial. This, you know, Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men, you know, you can't handle the truth. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Those moments don't really happen, except in the movies. 99% of the time, there is no big reveal in the courthouse. The question is really, who can take known facts and testimony? Everybody has access to the same stuff. That's what discovery is about. And you take those known facts and testimony and try to shape it in a way that is persuasive, that appeals to the listener, that helps the listener understand. And as you do that, themes and strategies start to emerge. So I was trying to think of a way to explain it. It's kind of like a fact is a rock that you can pick up and hold in your hand. It's a rock, but as you turn it over, as you hold it differently, or move it around in your hand, you might perceive it differently. You might see it in a different light. It's the same rock, but you're seeing it differently one side 
for example, might feel cool from facing or being buried in the dirt. And the other side might feel warm from facing the sunshine, still the same rock. The same is true for facts and how you present them. This isn't just in law, right? I mean, this is in life. And then people presented with those facts filter the facts through their own personal experiences, their own personal traumas, their own viewpoints, and trying to understand how they do so, trying to understand their perspective and figure out how to present the facts, the arguments in a way that they could receive it. Well, that was our assignment. That's what we were doing. So to do this, we worked with jury research experts, psychologists, acting coaches, and a screenwriter. There were, you know, this is back before the uh, economic downturn in the late 2000s, right? There were first-class flights, long meetings, gorgeous dinners, excellent wine, fine hotels, and exhaustion, sheer exhaustion, because the work was relentless. It was challenging. It was hard. Um, and, you know, I found this with many corporate clients. They recognized how hard their outside counsel was working. So travel expenses, that budget was a little bit more expansive um, because their theory was the way you treat your attorneys will show up in the way they show up for you. And they weren't wrong. You know, it was a it was a beautiful gift to be able to have those experiences on a corporate travel budget. But I'll tell you, it was hard. It was exhausting. Not to mention, okay, trial by fire for me, because I have tended in life to be a bit naive, a bit trusting, but navigating the politics of three law firms working together to serve a highly sought after client, I learned a lot in that. And um, yeah, I'm grateful for that experience. All great people. But you know, humans are humans when they are vying for position and status and security, right? Okay, Ashley, what in the world does this have to do with finding one's voice? All right, let's go back to the part where I said that we were working with acting coaches and a screenwriter. The screenwriter taught us how to present facts by telling a story a true story, a story that is tied to the facts, bound to the facts, but add color and texture so that the listener feels like they're right there in that moment that you are recounting. What were the smells? What were the sounds, the sights, the context? And through him, I learned to tune into these types of things in my everyday moments to start to collect the feelings as much as the facts in my memory. It was a really cool process. And one of my colleagues in New York, we called him Scooter. He was he was great. He really took this assignment to heart. And he began nearly every conversation with a practice round. Hey, let me tell you this story. And he practiced and he was good at telling stories. So storytelling, that is a discussion for another day. But if you happen to be a writer and you ever get the chance to read Screenwriting from the Soul by Richard Crevelin, I urge you to do so. What a book. It's great. All right. But let's get back to voice. 
because there were acting coaches. This was a priceless experience for me. There were two, both were named Jane, and (laughs) never were there two more different women. And yet, both deeply alive, deeply alive. I knew when one of the Janes walked into the room. They looked me in the eye, they held my gaze, the Janes laughed loudly, they cried quickly, sometimes they were quick to anger. They could hold your attention without saying a word, just by using the commanding pause. They moved in a different way than I had ever seen women move, and certainly not in the corporate world. I was fascinated. And from the Jane who taught me hmm, the elegance of a well-placed Hermes scarf, this is, I had no idea, right? But this is a timeless accessory that could be worn again and again and again for a lifetime and never lose its pop. From this Jane, I received my first lessons in self-care. I was roughly 30 years old. And Jane decided, Jane of the Hermes scarves, decided that I was going to find my voice. So I arrived at the appointed time in a conference room, one wall of which was glass. And that glass wall looked out onto a hallway that looked out onto another wall of glass that overlooked Grand Central Station and the span of New York City in all its breathtaking glory from the 52nd floor. It was it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. We were at 200 Park Avenue, New York, New York, in the MetLife building. And, you know, I was still new to New York City. I was new to the, I don't know, maybe 150 plus members of our New York office at the firm. And I told you, I am a small town girl, two traffic lights and a Hardee's. I was definitely not from around there. The first clue that I was not from around there, oh my goodness, my colleagues made such a thing of this. The first clue was my bright blue J. Crew winter coat, which was, by the way, not very warm at all, but super cute, at least in my mind. My colleagues in New York did not wear bright blue winter coats. They wore sensible black coats to keep them warm. Okay, imagine that. My colleagues later told me this, but only after a year of watching me skip down the street in my completely ridiculous blue coat. Oh, and um, yeah, I had these $5 scarves that I bought from a street vendor. They were like the softest, nonsense that I would wrap around my neck in a way that I thought was so stylish. And I was feeling so full of joy and adventure and fabulousness in the chill in this new adventure that there were times that I literally almost skipped from the hotel to the office. And one thing I did learn was to keep my high heels in a separate bag. And I I would show up just so excited with my cheeks rosy from the cold and my hair would be totally tangled from the wind and I like I couldn't have been happier at this time on this adventure. Anyway, let's go back to the conference room. 
I do digress, don't I? I get excited. Here we were on the 52nd floor. There's glass on one side, white walls on the other three, and then high gloss, dark wooden table in the middle and rolling leather chairs and fluorescent lighting. And uh, yeah, like it was sterile, but everything was shiny. Even the buildings that you could see through the glass, you know, the sun was like bouncing off of them and then the water around this beautiful island. And then there was Jane. I, I don't even know her age. Maybe then she was my age now, maybe a bit older, but she had this great skin. She had a few streaks of gray in her hair and she always had an Hermes scarf loosely slung over. I think that day she was maybe wearing like this slim gray dress and she just was just so dynamic. She looked like she was lit from within. And then there was me. Okay. I was wearing the uniform. I was wearing a black suit with a black camisole underneath the jacket. And my jacket like had a little flare. It had a hot pink lining, which I thought was fabulous. And black heels. I was tailored to the max. My hair was pulled back smooth in a ponytail. And I was so curious about what we were going to do to find my voice. So Jane says, um, yeah, here we go. We're going to find your voice. And I'd never heard that before. Like my mind was like, I don't even know what she's talking about. Like I have a voice. I've been talking since before I was two. And it's like she could read my mind. We are going to find your voice. And she like locked eyes with me. And she said, if you are going to speak to these mock jurors, if you are going to speak in the courtroom, if you're going to speak at all, it needs to be your voice. Okay, I'm 30 years old and I have no idea what she's talking about. Remember, like this is nearly 20 years ago. The world was a different place. Self-help memes and reels did not show up on Instagram. That was not a thing, okay? Self-discovery, at least in my world ever, self-discovery was not a thing. So I'm standing in this conference room just looking blankly at Jane. Like Again, I have no idea what she's talking about. Jane said, Ashley, pull that chair out into the middle of the room. So... I wheeled the chair, like it was like this leather and chrome chair to the middle of this sterile conference room. And she says, now, uh, you know what? Mm, Let's press pause. If you are listening to this with children, I should have told you this at the beginning. Like disclaimer, there's going to be cursing. A lot of it. Okay, so now might be the time to put your headphones on or if cursing bothers you, I'm sorry, I worked in a law firm for 20 years, like that's part of the life there, but there's about to be a lot of cursing. So you've been warned, okay? All right, I pull the chair out into the middle of the conference room and Jane says, now I want you to tell the chair, fuck you. You want me to do, just do it. Yell at the chair. (sighs) 
fuck you. I roll. Fuck you. Self-conscious giggle. Right? Louder, says Jane. Fuck you. Louder. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. She's like, you're not getting it. I don't want your voice to be up here. I don't want you to be soft. I want you to be real. Okay, the only way I'm getting out of this room and away from this chair is to yell at it. So that's what I did. Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. (laughs) Again and again and again for what felt like an eternity. It became a physical experience. I could feel it like down in my body, down in my core. Y'all, I grew up Southern Baptist. We did not talk like this. And I was pretty sure lightning was going to strike. Anyway, she could see me start to draw back a little bit, I think. And Jane said, come on, more, faster, louder. Fuck you. My black suit jacket came off. It hit the floor. Fuck you. My high heels come off. Fuck you. My hair was, at this point, completely undone. My voice got louder. It got deeper. Fuck you. And something unleashed in me, like completely unhinged. I lost it on that chair completely. And it was so dramatic that... I'm even tearing up right now thinking about it. People started coming out of other conference rooms. This was simply not done. Like, yes, there's a lot of cursing and sometimes screaming at a law firm. And for better or worse, you get used to that. But this was different. The gal from Atlanta was barefoot and unhinged. So, yeah, there I was in my glass cage, in a state of half undress, my heart racing, literally there was sweat beginning to form on my back. That's how aggressive I had gotten. Tears were seeping out of the corner of my eyes and slowly running down my cheeks while I yelled, fuck you at a chair. Fuck you, I whispered as I fell into that chair. And I have never, never been the same since. Jane said, okay, Ashley, good work. We're done here. I'll see you tomorrow. (laughs) I was hoarse. I was shaken. I was spent. And for the very first time in a really long time, I had heard my voice my strength, my power, my voice. Not something that was made to please somebody else, but something that uh, was uncaged from inside me. Later, Jane taught me about sending white light to the pain. But that's a story for another day. Jane opened up a piece of me that day that had been trapped for a very long time. I wonder if this has ever happened to you. You know, if something has happened to sort of shift things for you in a moment, it it definitely was that moment for me. That voice, my voice, 
it's come and gone over the years since that day in the New York City conference room. And starting this podcast, it has become clear to me that my voice, let's call it a voice with like a capital V, my voice longs to be here again with me, of me, alongside me, around me again. You know, finding my voice in this era, I'm starting to think there's a lot more to unleash. It's going to take a bit more than a fuck you session in a gilded cage. And I share this with you for whatever stage of the journey you're in. It's one of my favorite stories. And it raises the question, what is it going to take to unleash our own power? In that era, you know, we didn't have cancel culture, which, side note, terrifies me. We were able to have an exchange of ideas, to disagree and still coexist. We didn't have iPhones listening to everything we say. And by the way, on that point, if you think I'm nuts, just try it. Say that you really need a new rug for the kitchen and see what ads show up in your social media feed for the next few days. It's listening. Anyway, there are, it seems, perhaps greater consequences to sharing your voice today. But finding one's voice, getting deep, getting centered, that's the work. And that self-discovery is a lifetime's work. It doesn't happen just once in a conference room overlooking the city. It's a daily practice. And I think that is why... (laughs) Launching a podcast has been hard for me because for most, I've heard, I've read that most podcasts typically don't make it past episode 10. Why? It's vulnerable. It's vulnerable. You know, speaking to a mock jury like I did way back when, I never really got comfortable doing that. I had a lot of other personal work to do, a lot of work to do to learn who I was before I could connect with others in that way. So that was really just the start of doing the work. Speaking from stage now, often uh, I get to speak on stage about teaching legal issues for entrepreneurs or related things like negotiation strategies that I really enjoy. And it is really pure joy to me to connect with the audience. It's easier to connect these days from the stage than ever before because I've been doing the work. Got a long way to go, but I've been doing the work. But I gotta tell you that speaking into a microphone locked in my kid's closet right now, That's a whole different kind of vulnerable for me. At least before a jury or a judge, I could observe how they were receiving the information by watching their faces and their body language and course correct if something wasn't landing, right? At least on stage speaking, you can see how the message is landing and course correct. By the way, that's easier said than done, but again, discussion for another day. With podcasting, 
you know, I'm not talking about the evidence or facts or law or something that's outside of me. I'm sharing personal stories, my guests' stories, and my own. So if you're here listening at this early stage, thank you for walking this path with me. Once again, I'm at the next stage of finding my voice. It kind of feels like I've moved in, but I'm still unpacking. I don't know. Whatever your role, whatever your stage of life, I hope that you find your voice and that you share your journey with your neighbors, your kids, your colleagues, even your dog. You know, P.S. Dogs and kids know authentic. They know what's up. So thank you, Jane, for helping me begin this process oh, so many years ago. I hope that in sharing this, perhaps it starts a process for you, dear listener. So, you know, why not? Go get a chair and yell at it until you're exhausted. There's no telling what might come up. Whatever does come up, I promise you, you are equipped to handle it from your center, from your core, from the deep, rich resonance building from within you. I'd love to hear about your experience in finding your own voice. Thanks for letting me share. Hey, hey, quick side note. This opportunity came out of nowhere, but I have an opportunity to start a mastermind group of my own with the support of my friend, Mike Kim. I can accept a limited number of folks and we have to act fast because this starts a month from now. What is a mastermind, Ashley? It is a small group of people who provide peer support, brainstorm ideas, and offer a safe space to communicate about challenges that come up in both business and life. Because you know me, those conversations inevitably overlap. And I'll tell you, if there's anything I've done in the past two years that sustained me, even in some very challenging days, it is being regularly connected to other professionals, other business owners who help one another untangle the tangled thoughts and support one another in the journey, cheering one another on. That's what it's about, right? So if you're interested, send me a DM on Instagram at kickashlife or an email to ash at kickashlife.com. I'm not going to have this opportunity for long, so don't just think about it. Reach out and let's talk about it. So before I leave in this, as in every Thoughts from the Trike episode, I am going to remind you that you are love and light. You are health and wealth. You are joy and strength. You are fire and grace. And you have a voice. May you claim it. May you share it. I love you so much. <laughs>